You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as D.B. Cooper. Oh, damn, I shouldn't have said that. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Evan Ratliff, someone I am a huge admirer of. He's an award-winning journalist, and he's the founder of Atavist Magazine. He's also the author of a new book called The Mastermind about the leader of a ruthless drug cartel who couldn't have gotten as far as he did without the internet. Of course, once again, the internet is screwing with us. The subtitle of the book is Drugs, Empire, Murder, Betrayal. Oh, my goodness, Evan. Welcome to Rico Deco. Thank you. Wow, it sounds like yesterday on Twitter for me. All right, so first I want to talk about this book, but first I want to talk a little bit about uh, you because uh, you have a sort of fascinating history um, and uh, and do a lot of things. So give us like the quick, how did Evan get here to this drugs, empire, murder, and betrayal situation? Well, I worked as a freelance magazine journalist mm-hmm. for many years. So I had worked on staff at Wired mm-hmm. in the late 90s, early 2000s. So the, so the payday, right? The heyday, the dot-com mm-hmm. heyday. In fact, mm-hmm. I credit my career to the fact that the magazine was so fat at that it time was. that they needed they just needed to fill it and so right. I they got did. opportunities. That industry standard, there's a whole bunch of them. Industry right? standard, the mm-hmm. red herring. Yeah. Business 2.0. You know, I have all the industry standards, and I they start off skinny, and then they get fat, and then they go skinny. I call it the history of the early internet. I take a picture of it, but go ahead. <laughs> so that's how I that's how I first got into journalism yeah. was at Wired. Worked as a fact checker, then became a writer, left the staff, and then I was basically a freelancer for ten years, mm-hmm. and then uh, I started sort of starting up various journalistic type organizations with friends. One of them is Pop-Up Magazine, which I was mm-hmm. involved with early yes, on. Yes, you were. Uh, that's Explain Pop-Up. Pop-Up Magazine, which is now owned by Lorraine Jobs, correct? Uh, correct, mm-hmm. by, yeah, by Emerson. So Pop-Up Magazine is a live magazine presented on stage. It's nonfiction like a magazine. A lot of it is journalistic, mm-hmm. um, except that it is multimedia in the truest sense. It's film, it's audio, it's written pieces, sometimes combining all Right, so you started with Doug McGray, who's running California Magazine and other things, too, which, again, was bought by the Emerson Collective. But to talk about, I want to talk a little bit, because how did you think of that? Because one of the things you were doing was sort of anti, you didn't tape it, it just happened, it was live, it was analog. And not that you're like this guy in a bow tie and a and a Lincoln beard. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's what you'd imagine something that would come from. But it's a very live event, which is really kind of interesting. Yeah, it's. I mean, Doug was really the sort of like driving founder of it, mm-hmm. and and it started from this place of uh, I think 
disliking book readings a little bit mm-hmm. or just going to book readings and saying, okay, someone stands up and reads a book for a little right. while. Or you go to a photography exhibit and there was this idea that it really originated with Doug, which was why couldn't we put these things together? Mm-hmm. And then we thought, well, why couldn't we do it in a little theater? And originally not taping it, I think was really an accident because Cheap. we just didn't have the money to, to be able to do it right where it would mm-hmm. look good. Right. And so, but then after the first couple of shows, we discovered that was the appeal, a place where you come, you turn off your phones, it's not right. taped, it's right. made just for you. Right. Though you incorporate technology, you talk a lot about technology in the show. Yeah. Quite a bit. Pieces about technology. There are some a actually lot. very high-tech pieces, that, especially now. Now they're touring the country and, right. you know, they do some very sophisticated stories. Right. But it's still the same. It's not taped. You can't find it anywhere on the internet. If right. you don't go, you can't You can't see the magazine. Right. Well, I do bootleg ones <laughs> secretly under the name. <laughs> you know? No, I don't do that. And I never, well, I could do it. I could start doing it. So you started doing that and then moved on. And then uh, I moved to New York, and I had done this story for Wired magazine, uh, which typically goes under the name Vanish, which was about my attempt to disappear for a month. Mm -hmm. And they held a contest for people to find me, and it Mm -hmm. became a big kind of national story. Disappear meaning going off. Meaning not go off the grid, but sort of adopt a new identity and shed my old identity and then uh, try to keep from using aspects of my old identity Mm -hmm. in my new one. And and sort of leave everyone behind mm-hmm. and start a new life. Right. And uh, people were were able to uh, use my information to try and catch me, which they eventually did. Oh, where and were you? Five thousand like dollar prize. Omaha? I was in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. Was, well, that's a nice place to book. Shabby. How they catch apartment. you? They caught me using. Uh, there's sort of two layers of how they caught me. They used my IP address. Mm-hmm. So I was masking my IP address, but then I kind of got overconfident and I had unmasked it for a few things. And they, at the time, you could build apps on Facebook mm-hmm. that would collect all the IPs of everyone who visited the page. Oh, no. Um, and so someone did that, mm-hmm. this guy on Seattle. And so he managed to sort through and figure out which one was mine, mm-hmm. and they honed it down to New Orleans. Wow. Wow. And so the idea is, why did you want to do this? What was I was interested in, I mean, this This is like comical now because it's. this was 10 years ago, but mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of information that was collected mm-hmm. by, even at the time, by not just social media, but yeah. all of the databases, who could get access to them, how they could be used. Oh, and then I, I was also... assume I'm being followed at every moment of my life. Yeah, now, and now I think it's, mm. it's uh, generally understood... Well, maybe not generally understood. No, it's but not generally it's, understood. Uh, yeah. understood in certain quarters yeah. how much of that data and where it's going. Mm-hmm. And I was also I just intrigued with people who fake their own deaths, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where it started. Oh, and I just thought it's like a version of faking my own death without the severe consequences. Or right. And then you started Atavis Magazine and talk about. And that. then coming off of that, I was living in New York and interested in doing those types of stories, like long narrative stories, mm-hmm. and sort of finding that there were the traditional magazines where you could do them, like The New Yorker or Wired or places Mm -hmm. that I was writing for, but there were not online outlets that were willing to do that. And it was very much in the time frame of sort of like uh, attention spans are getting shorter and you're starting to get into aggregation and just shorter and shorter Mm -hmm. uh, pieces. So we wanted to create a publication to allow you to do narrative journalism and design it specifically for the web. So use all the tools Mm -hmm. of the web to make it very... You know, web centric. So right. that was me and Nicholas Thompson, who's now editor in chief of Wired, right. mm-hmm. and a guy named Jeff Rab, who was our designer and programmer. So mm-hmm. we basically set out to 
create a long-form magazine. And so then you speak. created Longform, right? Longform, I didn't create. Uh, the two founders, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, created Longform mm-hmm. as a recommendation engine for long stories. Right. Together, we created a podcast right. that's called the Longform t- Podcast. Yes, I was yeah. on it. It was quite fun. Yeah, it was fun. We had that, was good, that was a great it? show. I think I... I wasn't drunk, but I acted drunk. It was weird. I, <laughs> so know. many people bring up that show. Yeah, it's I, they do. I seem to like. I just was like, "Fuck you, fuck that." It was really. It was great fun. I don't drink at all. Although I just had Norwegians into the office here, they are very interested in what I have to say in Norway, and they brought me uh, Aquavit. So maybe I'll do another one. <laughs> That's a good place to start. Apparently, anyway, it was great. It was really great. So let's get to where how you got to this. This is like such. That's why I'm trying to give up people an idea. That this is kind of a real left turn. Like I, I was right sort of surprised. Book. That's why you're here because I'm like, what he's doing? What <laughs> if you came to me with like yet another journalistic effort to like you know print journalism on salami and everybody eats it. I've been like, I'll have that and on to talk about that. But explain this mastermind thing. How did you get interested in this? Because, uh, you know, Nick Nick Bilton did the same thing. He wrote, he's, he's writing about, well, he's writing about the dark web, isn't he? So anyway, yeah, go so ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Similar in some ways. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so I wrote this as a, originally as a series of articles. I wrote the book was originally mm-hmm. a series of articles for the Atavis magazine. Right. So, mm-hmm. and the reason that we did them the way we did them was it was a big story that I had stumbled across about this uh, head of this cartel. Mm-hmm. Um, Explain the cartel. So he was a computer programmer named Paul LaRue, Paul mm-hmm. Calder LaRue, mm-hmm. uh, born in Zimbabwe but uh, also raised in South Africa, so people call him South African sometimes. And he was actually a very, very talented technologist. He created a piece of software called Encryption for the Masses in the late 90s, early 2000s, which was the precursor to TrueCrypt, which is one of the most infamous, one of the most famous pieces of disk encryption software. Mm-hmm. So he did that, but... So you started from a tech angle. This is a techie. That's part a, of... A yeah. deep techie, too. Like, not a... Yeah, he's, yeah. I mean, one of the things I would say about him is if everything he did had been done in the straight world, mm-hmm. we would be sitting here talking about it. He would be on the cover of Fast yeah, Company magazine. Yeah, right, so he's the billionaire magazine. founder of the best encryption software. That's, yeah, right. but what he did was he gave away encryption for the masses for free, part of the open source movement, mm-hmm. and then he got very frustrated that he never made any money on it. Oh, well, he shouldn't have given away for free. Well, he was trying to participate in the it. spirit of, I get, I get of, that. of the times, yeah. or still today, yeah. of the open source software movement. So what he did instead was he started a prescription pill online empire, mm-hmm. and it was incredibly How clever. How did he make that shift? Talk about it. I mean... Well, it's not quite clear where he got the original idea, if it just popped out of his head or ah, he was sort opiates. of copying. fantastic, of the masses instead of <laughs> conception for the masses. And, uh, yeah, and opioids, literally yeah. opioids. So in, the, in about 2004, he basically started building this network, and the idea was they would recruit local doctors in the United States, local pharmacists in the United States, and mm-hmm. then a customer could go online Google a drug like tramadol, mm-hmm. painkiller, mm-hmm. and they would go to a site that was controlled by Paul LaRue or one of his affiliates. Then their order there and their little survey that they filled out would go to a real doctor in the U.S. Right. who had signed on to be paid by the prescription to write prescriptions. Right. Then that prescription would go to a small-town pharmacist who was trying to compete against big-box retailers. Right. They would get $2 per prescription for issuing it. Right. And in doing so, the whole actual distribution of the drugs was contained within the United States. He, Paul Rue, was operating from the Philippines behind layers and layers of technology and, and doing making so why? hundreds of millions of dollars. Doing so why? Operating from the Philippines. Originally, I think it was because they have 
decent infrastructure. They have a call center kind of culture. Mm -hmm. So he needed customer service call centers for the sites. Mm -hmm. Um, But eventually it became more that he could buy off almost anyone in the government or law enforcement and Mm -hmm. and did so. so. Because they were going to arrest him for drug trafficking. Uh, Many things, yes. First, drug trafficking, but also eventually violence, murder. He shifted, he used his proceeds from the prescription pill network to get into all manner of international crime. He's probably the most prolific criminal possibly in history. He got into arms sales. He sold arms to Iran. Mm -hmm. He was buying meth out of North Korea. He was shipping hundreds of kilos of cocaine and yachts across the world, across the Mm -hmm. Pacific Ocean. So he was actually becoming a real kind of like El Chapo-style cartel, but he actually made the whole thing himself, like from scratch. From scratch. Out of his head. So, and a business that is adjacent legal, right, in the way it's done. The pill business, it was a really tricky thing when they tried to prosecute it because, Mm -hmm. first of all, they couldn't get to him, so they chased him for many, many years. Mm -hmm. They started chasing him in 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. Uh, they being they being the DEA, right. beginning with the DEA in Minneapolis. It's actually this one agent. Or she's not even an agent. She was an investigator, Kimberly Brill. Mm-hmm. She was like an almost rookie investigator who figured out that this network existed and mm-hmm. then unraveled it almost entirely on her own. She had a partner mm-hmm. for part of it. That part of the story is kind of incredible. Yeah. But it's tricky, the question of whether or not it, it was legal. It's clearly illegal in the sense that the doctors were not writing prescriptions for their patients who right. were coming to see them. Right. It was like the, the, they, they, how they used to do marijuana in California before. Like yeah. They, you just, just get online. I, I have a headache. Yeah. Oh, here you need a medical marijuana thing. Exactly. That but, went on forever. But then they just legalize it and then no one cares. Now you get it in the cafe. Right. Well, You know, the cough. Have a CBD cough. I'm like, no. I want you that. haven't joined the CBD revolution? You know what? Whatever. Like, no, it's offered everywhere. I was, I'm going to take a little side drug tri, drug moment. I went to a, an event in Portland, Oregon, their tech event there, tech whatever, Northwest, and they gave me a swag bag, and it was a bottle of wine, and I didn't look at it. I'm like, oh, I can't take this on the airplane. I'm doing a carry-on, and so I left it for the whoever in the hotel. I don't drink anyway, and I take the bag, and I go home, and I finally get home, and I pour it out, and it's full of pot stuff because it's legal in Oregon, right? Like, Cigarettes, like food, drink, whatever. Everything had fucking CBD in it, a CBD or a TCH, both, both. It was like crazy. And I was like, what? They like, I carry, I was like a drug mule. Like, and so I called the guy and I said, hey, you gave me a swag bag full of marijuana, like pot, weed and stuff, weed things, like 10 different things. It's like, oh, yeah, cool. Do you like it? I'm like, no, I do not like moving it across, like, state lines and, like, in the in the thing. And he's like, well, it's legal in California now. I'm like, yeah, but it's not legal on the plane between – it was, like, literally – and so that's how I feel about drugs. I find them exhausting. And they should have just given you a warning. I don't even don't, smoke. Don't, don't take like this smoking. on the plane. I don't like any of this stuff. In any case, move along. So it was interesting. But it was it, – now it's everywhere. Now it's – now everywhere you go. You can't avoid it. Well, yeah. This morning I was offered a CBD coffee. And I was like, <laughs> no, thank you. My but these is- these um, drugs in the uh, that they were distributing they actually mm-hmm. went the other way, which is that they had chosen their three primary drugs, all right. of which were painkillers, were non-controlled. So it wasn't like OxyContin; it was Tramadol, Fioraset, which are like big time painkillers, and they are addictive. But at the time, they were not controlled by the U.S. government. So right. by the end of the story, the government, fi- the U.S. government, finally does put them on on the control schedule, and that's sort of how they part of how they were able to roll up the All right, so he network. started with an internet business. He started with, okay, when we get back, we're talking with Evan Ratliff. He's the, uh, has a new book out called The Mastermind Drugs 
empire, murder, betrayal. We're going to talk more about how uh, this uh, really entrepreneur created this business and then moved to the dark side, the darker and darker side, when we get back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Evan Ratliff. He is the author of a new book. He does a lot of things on the internet that you know him better for, uh, including Atavis Magazine and other things. But he has a new book called The Mastermind, Drugs, Empire, Murder, Betrayal. So the way you did get interested in through tech, right? So writing about sort of a tech, uses of tech to create all this kind of stuff. Yeah, the in, sort of intersection of tech and crime. All right, so talk about that a little bit. I, I want to get more in talking about Paul, but talk about that, because I think right now there's obviously the drug trial going on with um, El Chapo. What is his real name? I forget. Uh, and his 53 mistresses, whatever. It's a fantastic story, literally. Like, there's, like, the account and there's the techie. But there's tech at the center of every bit of this trial. Oh, yeah, it's I think been incredible really to watch the day-by-day. Day. Oh, I, I like, they, that's Twitter how they really caught him. They got the techie, right? It's like a movie. Yeah. They yeah, got yeah. the techie who was set up his system and then who then spied on him with the system he set up on him. Yep. And then you get texts and everything else. The whole thing is— phones, yeah. But it's all about tech, the whole thing. And then I was thinking, how many innovative ways can this guy think of to bring in drugs, which was really interesting. So talk a little bit about the backdrop of what's happened in the drug trade because it seems— Seems like they're quite entrepreneurial in their uses of tech. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. So you have, I mean, you have a f- sort of a few kinds of intersections between sort of like tech and the the large scale like drug criminal world. You have the dark web, which mm-hmm. is the sort of Silk Road. I mm-hmm. mean, that's really you know selling people drugs over the internet, drugs, you know, scheduled drugs, illegal drugs, cocaine, whatever, mm-hmm. um, where they're using cryptocurrency and they're buying their individual thing and it's being shipped to their house or dead drop or what have you. And then you have the El Chapo situation where you have a sort of traditional drug lord mm-hmm. who's, you know, come up through a cartel right. in Mexico. Shooting his way to the top. Exactly. And then is Meet utilizing my technology. Friend. Meet my little friend, yeah. Is <laughs> utilizing technology. Accent. To, I'd like to hear it. No, I will not because I do, it's not a nice thing to do these days. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it is a movie. I, I understand, but I'm not going to do it. So he, he, what he's doing is he's actually using technology sort of to, for secrecy, for uh, controlling his communications. Right. And then you have Paul LaRue, the character that I wrote about, who's sort of, he's a kind of new type of criminal who he actually, he came from being a programmer. So he's mm-hmm. actually bending technology to his will in all these different well, talk ways. talk about that. What do you mean, beg, talk about how he does that? Well, one example is, so when he set up all of these pharmacy websites, he's setting up pharmacy websites everywhere. Right. Now, 
there are organizations that this go— This is someone has had a bad back, and they're like, can't get their doctor to give—I can't believe in this country you can't get a doctor to give you a prescription for drugs. It seems like it's a relatively easy thing to do. but So you can't get that, and so you go to one of these sites. You go to one of these sites. You Google your drug. You right. go to one of these sites. You place an order. Now, those sites— there are organizations that try to get those sites taken down because mm-hmm. they're quote-unquote rogue pharmacies. Mm-hmm. So if one gets taken down, of course, you can put up another one somewhere else. But right. it takes some effort to do that. Right. But what LaRue did was he actually got his own domain registrar. He created his own domain registrar. Mm-hmm. So official like GoDaddy or Network mm-hmm. Solutions got it approved by ICANN as mm-hmm. the only domain registrar in the Philippines mm-hmm. and then used it exclusively to generate thousands and thousands of domains for himself. So if right. you took him down, he could just make a thousand more that day. Right. So that was part of it that it took the investigators a while to understand. Because he wasn't working through GoDaddy or Yeah, he was like a vertically solutions. integrated criminal business. Like every uh-huh. aspect they looked at, it was actually him right. behind it, including right. he created his he own— he built his servers? But go he ahead. built his own servers. Oh, of course he did. He yeah. built his own um, email server. So— if they did a search warrant, if someone was using Gmail, you just right, go to Google. To buy, to buy the drugs. Or, or even inside the organization, right. like an operator inside the organization. But what then what LaRue did was he created his own email server that was encrypted that they couldn't get to right. for internal communications. He just I made see. it himself. Right, right. So he was sort of using technology both to insulate himself and to operate his business. In these sites. And so you would order and then—but he had the soup to nuts— Thing of it to protect he was it. paying for the FedEx account, so then the pharmacist would drop your drugs into a FedEx envelope that he had paid for. He'd ship you a computer if you wanted. It was all set up. It had the software on it. Right, and then, that you'd use for these things. Yep, exactly. And to communicate with these pharmacists, how did that happen? That happened mostly over and email. So he had uh, email and, and phone, but he actually had call centers in Israel and the Philippines that would mm-hmm. recruit these doctors either over Craigslist or work-at-home forums, or they would just send random emails to pharmacists and say, do you want to join our network? But the pharmacists never knew anything about the network beyond the one fake name person that they were talking to. So they're talking to Joe, Mm -hmm. and all they know is they're writing prescriptions, and they're making hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars, the doctors or the pharmacists. And then So they would get a fee. They would get a fee per prescription. Right, okay. And then even if the investigators... Let's say went in and raided Stop that one doctor. There's just another one pops up. There were hundreds of them. So, right. and they couldn't get to the network through the doctors because the doctors didn't even know who they were working with. Right. And why not? If you're a doctor, like, hey, the pot guys do what this does. It's sort of common, right? Yeah. I mean, the doc, I, there's one doctor character in the book, and I mean, he actually believed he was doing something uh, of great value. That mm-hmm. there were all these people, as you say, who couldn't get their prescriptions mm-hmm. for back problems. Their insurance ran out. And he was simply providing them cheaper prescriptions than right. they would get if they had to go Never into the emergency Never having seen room. these patients. Never having seen the patients, only having seen a survey that they filled out right. on the website. Which is astonishing. Which is just this, well, they hand out drugs like candy in this country, don't they? So it's, a, it's, it's against a backdrop of already sort of loose standards on handing out it, there's a sort of There's a sort of uh, paradox where both things are true, like both over-prescription of painkillers— mm-hmm. Opioids is obviously mm-hmm. became a tremendous problem, but there is also a problem of insurance and, and getting the healthcare them. system yes, and, and getting, getting them properly. Them. Get them. And then the pharmacist part was separated from the doctors. Right. So the pharmacist didn't know the doctors. Right. They knew that they were real they doctors. Send the in. Right. So the so they could goes check. They could uploaded. They could check the doctors' mm-hmm. script. Okay. Mm-hmm. So to them, everything was real. I mean, they were 
they were issuing real prescriptions and for then mail them. real patients, and then yeah. they, they mail them out, they show, they show up at your door. Right, exactly. Paul was using this system as if he was providing his Amazon or something like that. Exactly. Right, yeah. except highly protected. Yeah. In what fact, one of the things—so eventually he kind of—the system was faltering, and one of the reasons was, like Amazon or any other retailer, he was really dependent on cheap shipping. Mm-hmm. and the FedExes and UPSs started questioning whether or not this was legal. So they dropped his accounts. Oh. So they kept having to find different ways to ship the drugs. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, he had already— How got, did they question it? It was just a lot of pharmacy. The federal government set up a verification system to try to stop illegal online pharmacies. And so they basically said, FedEx and UPS, you have to verify that these pharmacies are real. It's called the VIPS system. Mm-hmm. And so they would go to Paul LaRue's operators and say, look, you have an account here, a lot of— Pharmacies seem to be shipping on it. Hundreds of pharmacies are shipping on it. You need to provide this VIPS certification. So then mm-hmm. they were trying to fake the VIPS certification. They were sort of like mm-hmm. struggling for a couple of years trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to get around that. Mm-hmm. And But LaRue, meanwhile, he, he'd gotten into large-scale other crimes. So right. he, had, he had diversified, diversified. By that point. All right. But this was the stepping up point. So talk about the diversification. So uh, prescription drugs are harder to do. So let's get into an easier business. Yeah. I mean, and I've got hundreds of millions of dollars in profit here. That it's laund- that's been laundered through Hong Kong gold purchases. So he got he got into doing a lot of strange operations in Africa, where partly just a lot of money, like timber operations and black market gold, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But then he got into sort of large scale drug buying. Right. Um, and so it, wait, he got all this money, and he had to launder it because he couldn't. I mean, just because he wanted it to be untraceable back right. to him right. from, by presumably the U.S. government, who was. Right. S- a lot of governments were paying attention to him, but the U.S. Mm-hmm. government was really the only one that he was ever mm-hmm. afraid of, and right. rightfully so. Right. Um, so he started using that money to uh, get into the cocaine business, making contact with cartels in South America. He got into the meth business, working through Chinese triads to buy meth by the ton out of North Korea, mm-hmm. where it's state-sponsored manufacturing of methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, North Korea. And oh, then, never disappoints that country, does it? <laughs> And he actually uh, he started building his own drones to deliver the drugs. So he oh, had okay. was reverse engineering a predator drone. Mm-hmm. He was building a submarine, and he had all these sort of like warehouses in the Philippines so where he'd bring in engineers to build things for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that sort of was his the business that he was moving into it was really being a sort of distributor, drug of drugs. lord of the world, and right. arms. He was moving. He was doing big arms deals around the world. He was working with Eastern Europe on that. He started his own militia in Somalia. Uh, because he wanted to set up his own kind of self-protected little kingdom there where he could grow drugs. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of the book where he's building this operation. That's traditional, though, though. That's sort of drug dealer 101, right? Drug cartel head 101 is to have your own militia. Well, yeah, and to go to a place that's relatively lawless mm-hmm. uh, was his idea where he felt like he could control the environment. I mean, it turns mm-hmm. out Somalia's very out of control in other ways that mm-hmm. were difficult for him to even use right. his money to get around. Right. But um, yeah, he under the guise of starting a tuna fishing operation right. in Somalia, he uh, showed up there or his men showed up there and, and launched this whole operation. Mm-hmm. So after that, he started getting into illegal drugs. What else? Weapons. Weapons. Including selling missile technology to Iran. Uh-huh. Um, Which is where you get in big trouble. That is that is uh, not looked that's on where they don't highly. You can sell all the cocaine you want, but that's not a. I mean, you can't. But ultimately, that's where he got gets into trouble, presumably. Well, he partly gets into trouble because he's been on the U.S. radar for a long time. By mm-hmm. 2012, but 
he had sort of one of the wrong people killed in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a number of people murdered, but one of them happened to have connections to the president. Mm-hmm. So his sort of protective layer was potentially fractured a little bit. So mm-hmm. he actually left to restart his business in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So he moved to Rio. And one of the strangest parts of the story is they're engaged in a process of trying to impregnate women who he hired to have children for him so that he could avoid extradition if he were ever arrested in okay. Brazil. Mm-hmm. So he's in Brazil. That's um, a rule in Brazil. Yeah, Brazilian children. The rule, Brazilian citizens are very hard to extradite. It's not quite clear if it would have worked ultimately, mm-hmm. but it certainly might have tangled up the system. I mean, he did succeed in having a child, mm-hmm. um, oh, but he actually was not arrested in Brazil. So mm-hmm. then another side of the DEA than the one that had been tracking him sort of stepped in called the 960 Group, which does a lot of big international operations. Mm-hmm. And they created a sting operation using an insider from his organization to lure him to Liberia for a big drug deal. And that's where he was arrested. Mm-hmm. So tell me what got you interested. What, what was the thing? That, what, was it this use of technology? Or what was the, what did you think was unusual about it? Because again, El Chapo is an interesting, like these stories are similar and the same. Do you know what I mean? The idea of what it is. And then in the next section, I want to talk about where the international drug trade is going and the uses of technology in it. Um, But what attracted you to this story? I think partly this particular character, Paul Roo as a a person, embodied the entrepreneurial spirit in a way (laughs) that you just don't see in these large-scale criminal organizations in the same way. Like the technological, the modern startup founder. Like he Mm -hmm. was that guy. Mm -hmm. Like he was a teenager who was interested in computers and kind of like fell into a world of technology in the same way you read about Zuckerberg, in the same way you read about Elon Musk. If you read Mm -hmm. about their childhoods, it matched up so perfectly. So the thing that so fascinated me about him was that he, he just took that in a slightly different direction and almost succeeded. I mean, at a certain point, he was making as much money as Facebook was making at the same time. Right. At least by one DEA estimate. They don't really know how much money he made. But that sort of mirror image of the modern startup founder mm-hmm. that we hail all the time uh, or that people did, were hailing up until very right. recently. No, now they're <laughs> worse than – they're not worse than drug dealers. Let me just – let me preface that. But they have a reputation that is not going so well. <laughs> yeah. Although people accuse them of addiction. They, they use, they're using terms like that around – well, sure. Yeah, I mean, now the the conversation around that is much different than it was. Yeah, you know, we'll talk about ten, it in a minute. Ten so, years so, ago. but so that that attracted me to him. And then mm-hmm. I think the other thing in the book, I write about a lot of the people who were pulled into the organization, and I'm just really interested in the kind of moral choices that people make when mm-hmm. they, like the doctors and the pharmacists, and even some of the people who worked at the call center, sure. like why they decided to join and what it felt like to be pulled into something that was much, much bigger than themselves. Right, right. Well, there's bad people everywhere. (laughs) There are, but I I think we tend to look at these people as sort of like good and bad and not people who are on a kind of spectrum of moral choices. No, of course not, and I think you get pulled into—I was just talking about this— someone that there's a lot of little people involved in little pieces of things and they don't realize they're part of a bigger thing. Yeah, I mean you can like, say the same thing about people who work for Facebook right, now. Right, or or you know it was just, we were talking specifically about uh Maven at Google like the, some people just didn't want to work on it. Mm-hmm. Now before there were lots of companies where they just were like they made one little wingtip on a on a on a missile and they didn't pay attention. And you're one part of a bigger, bigger problem that you don't notice. And and the connections being made are really hard to make, but now not so much. Yeah, and uh, now those employees who have even nothing to do with that thing right. are have speaking out and saying, yeah, so it's interesting. I don't it's be an interesting question. But the idea of, of getting pulled into this is not a surprise to me at all. 
you know, the people do get pulled, pulled into little bits like the pharmacists and others, and especially as their businesses are getting crushed online and getting crushed in lots of ways by big, either bigger pharmacies or just secular changes in retail, for example. I can see why a pharmacist mm-hmm. would seek more business or a doctor. Like, how do I—this seems—of course I'm going online and doing these snap— Decision making on people's opiates, yeah, like, rather than see people and stuff like that. And you sort of, but you sort of start with one, mm-hmm. just a little step, and you say, okay, right. well, I'm going to do some, and then yeah. it's so easy. And then and now you're doing a thousand a day. And if and I was a drug dealer, why not apply entrepreneurial things to my business? Well, it was, yeah, it was a space waiting to be occupied. Occupied. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're here with Evan uh, Ratliff. He has a new book out called The Mastermind. It's about a drug dealer. It's called The Mastermind Drugs, Empire, Murder, Betrayal. When we get back, we're going to talk about where the international drug trade is going and how it intersects with the Internet, because I think it's been a really uh, big issue uh, and will be even more so going forward. We're here with Evan Ratliff. He's the author of Mastermind. It's a book about the new drug trade. Can you talk a little bit in general about what people should be looking for? Who are the big players? What is the What are the big dangers? And how law enforcement is dealing with that? Well, I think, I mean, to a certain extent, law enforcement has started to get a little bit of a grip on the internet in terms of, like, understanding. I mean, <laughs> Silk Road was a big thing for dark markets and the exposure <laughs> of that. And <laughs> and now, you know, they're very active in, in trying to penetrate those markets. But <laughs> you can already kind of see it shifting. I was reading this uh, very interesting story. Um, I, can't, I don't know if it was written by Matthew Green, who's at Johns Hopkins, <laughs> or he just pointed me to it. <laughs> but it was the way those dark markets are now shifting to where if you went on to a uh, the dark web and bought drugs, typically it would be shipped to your house. Mm-hmm. That's a very easy way for it to be intercepted or right. to discover who's doing it. Now they're using dead drops where it's left somewhere and you pick it up. Like the market keeps changing. Mm-hmm. The procedures keep changing. But there's no question that every single layer now has technology. Mm-hmm. Like there's no uh, viable drug operation well, that's about, not going to be Talk about the legal drug industry because that's also now not just prescription drugs, but uh, weed and things like that. Well, yeah. I mean, the the legal drug industry has, in some ways, has sort of shown what the alternative, like, Paul LaRue Avenue mm-hmm. was to a certain extent. You know, you've got pot startups in the Bay Area who mm-hmm. are, you know, a lot of them will end up going away in, this, in mm-hmm. the way that startups always There's go away. Many, yeah. There's too many of them. But at the same time, they're applying the same principles, whether it's, you know— the sort of like seamless of pot delivery, mm-hmm. you know, all of that sort of ease, stuff. Yes, exactly. All of that is it's following the same footprint that any other retail Except with hundred percent less is. murder, right? <laughs> kind of. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Well, today, um, but but where do you see it going? The both the illegal and the legal one, because it's presumably as things become, because you know, I've written a lot about. You know, they're looking at LSD and some others that were on the scheduled drugs that are they're trying to remove them from them in microdose and things like that. Where is the drug trade going? I mean, obviously, you're going to always have the El Chapos and the cocaine, the load, you know, the boatloads of cocaine and the and the that world. But where is it moving towards? How do you look at it going forward? Well, in the U.S., it's gotten complicated because you have legal. If you take pot, you have. It's legal in some states and not in others. The federal mm-hmm. government still doesn't declare it legal. So, and it, like threatens to crack down depending they're on who the attorney to, general is. Well, now he they're not. The new one. He's like, I don't care. I'm not even sure that the old one was, but no, um, he, cared. he cared. He cared. I'm not sure that 
with everything that was going on. It was no, because he would have yelled at by his boss every five <laughs> minutes. But he would have. Had he been supported in, a, in the style he thought he would be, he, he would have made a big deal of it. It would have been a real—I was waiting for the, the fight between California and uh, the attorney general. But yeah, no. I have a friend who declined to join a, a startup, you know, mm-hmm. because he, when Sessions was brought in, yeah, he said, like, you know, uh, it's, not, it's not worth right, the risk. They don't even take uh, credit cards either, too. You have to pay cash or, or debit cards. But All anyway, right. yeah. I was just in Mad Men in Los Angeles. I was doing research. Um, and I bought something, and I could not pay for it with my credit card still. And I was like, still? But they won't accept. Anyway, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, they can't get payment processors. Whatever. But that's, it was ridiculous. But that is part of uh, what I was saying about the confusion around right. it is, you know, mm-hmm. you've got a whole apparatus for legal distribution, but there's still these kinks in it because there are these questions about the broader legality right. of it across the United States. So right. you have that, and then you also have... So you're still going to have illegal drugs being brought into the rest of the states. Right. And then alongside that, you have the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. So you have prescription drugs leading to the importation of heroin, you know, the increased heroin usage Mm -hmm. when people are then weaned off of OxyContin or forced to go off OxyContin. So you have this, like, what we have now is like a crazy mix of what's going on. And so Mm -hmm. it's sort of, to be honest, it's difficult to see, like, how that all gets worked out other than that treatment feels like it's the only answer. Yeah, that, that would be the right answer. That's the correct that. answer. Yeah. Or maybe not making people's lives so miserable so they need to turn to drugs. But um, that, drugs have been with us forever. I'm not saying that. But what does the modern illegal drug market look like after Paul? I think the, there's probably space for many, many Paul mm-hmm. around the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially because one of the things I learned, I mean, they went through a lot of effort. The DEA went through a tremendous amount of effort to catch this guy and then to catch the people that worked for him because he had these mercenaries, ex-military mercenaries who were working for him as kind of hitmen. So mm-hmm. they, they went around and used sting operations to round them up. It was all very clever. But that amount, expenditure of effort, is just not possible for most of the drug dealers around the world. So mm-hmm. if you have... People popping up like LaRue, which I think you will have, who are technologically savvy Mm -hmm. and can control distribution from a place like the Philippines where they can control their environment, Mm -hmm. then it's just very, very difficult to get to them. So you still have the same interdiction efforts of trying to keep people inside, you know, from drugs from coming to the United States. But, you know, it used to be that, or maybe it still is the case where, you know, they would try to stop the drugs at the stores in Peru or Colombia and they'd spray all the plants. And But now you have a sort of distributed model for mm-hmm. drug cartels in which right. you could set up and operate somewhere from scratch, I think is what, I think it's what LaRue showed is that you can build it all from scratch. Without having been in the drug business your whole life. Maybe. Exactly. Right. I mean, if you have the money. Right. And he generated the money also from scratch through the prescription pill startup mm-hmm. and then used that money and he... He could go anywhere in the world and basically get anything he wanted. Right. So what what are we to do? Because presumably we're not for this. We're not for, well, some people are, right? But the idea of, of what, where does it go from there? Well, I think it just shows that even though they did successfully catch LaRue, that that as a model for s- stopping the problem uh, is, as I think a lot of people have known for a long time, is just not sustainable. Like there's no way that you can catch enough people to mm-hmm. solve this problem. So, right. I mean, I think I'm not a drug policy expert, but, uh, you know, some mix of treatment on on the end of users in the United States mm-hmm. combined with, you know, targeted efforts, interdiction efforts probably makes 
right. some sense. Right. And what about the of what people are selling and the way they're delivering? Does that change technology? You talked about drone delivery. You talked about lots of ways to get drugs. Is there any top trend now? I mean, in terms of delivering sort of bulk amounts of drugs, um, there's, I mean, there's the traditional, like, Mexican border type of stuff, like tunnels under the border and that sort of thing. But actually, submarines is, if there's a trend, like, submarines (laughs) is is one of them. What's the trend in illegal drug selling? (laughs) That's the one Paul Rue was really getting into was... Explain submarines for people. You have your own submarines. You fill them with drugs. Either they're sort of like one-man, small-operated submarines or uh, or drone submarines, uh, even better, that you can fill with drugs and then just send them ashore or send them to meet a boat Mm -hmm. and they could drop drop something off at a buoy. So the idea is like you don't lose men, nobody gets caught. I mean, Mm -hmm. you could lose your big submarine if they were able to stop that, but like most Coast Guards in the world are not going to have that ability. stop a submarine. Yeah. Yeah, not a big one. And drones, like airborne drones, obviously are are a big way to get you know over borders and around around surveillance as well. So that's another thing that Larue was spending a lot of time trying to figure out. Figuring out big drones, yeah, yeah. heavy heavy lift, yeah, like predator style drone. He was right. he was reverse engineering a predator drone to, de- to, to move deliver drugs. drugs to deliver drugs across yeah. the border. And what about uh, the last mile part? Getting to the the door of the the mm-hmm. user. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean that that part of it. I think when it came to the prescription drugs. Paul Rue was kind of a genius, right. but when it comes to, uh, he was relying on ev- the, the apparatus that everyone else does, which is, you know, there dealers. are drug dealers in every city, and if you can get to the mm-hmm. the top bulk importer, the wholesale importer of that area, right. you know, that's who you want to sell to. So he, he was not, like, distributing cocaine on the streets of the right. United States. In fact, he studiously avoided hard drugs, selling hard drugs into the United States, mm-hmm. precisely because he knew he could get in huge trouble. Unfortunately, so he sold them elsewhere. Well, he sold them elsewhere, and then when they set up a sting operation for him, they told him that the drugs were going to New York, and that's all they have to do under this uh, provision, the federal drug law provision called the 959 provision. All you have to do is be uh, attempting to distribute drugs in the United States. So when he heard that they were going to New York, that's what roped him into U.S. charges for distribution. Right, right. So in across the world, who were the best, I guess, stoppers? Of these things? How do these regulatory agencies work together? I mean, what I discovered is that they don't work together particularly well. So this one well. woman just decided, I'm going to get this guy. She and another investigator, they're not, they're not even agents of the DEA. They're, they're called diversion investigators, which means they, they investigate drugs that are diverted off the legal market onto the illegal market, mm-hmm. so prescription drugs that are mm-hmm. being sold illegally. So they actually figured out that there was a pharmacy in Chicago that was shipping a lot of illegal drugs, illegal prescriptions. And when they went in there, they found a FedEx account. Mm-hmm. And they subpoenaed FedEx. And when FedEx sent them these spreadsheets, they saw that there were hundreds of pharmacies mm-hmm. distributing drugs on the same FedEx account. Right. And that kind of clued them in Which that there's FedEx some— FedEx should have known, but— Well, FedEx was later—they attempted to prosecute FedEx, actually. Yeah. And they ended up—the f- trial was a fiasco, and they dropped the charges. Yeah. But, uh, UPS agreed to, a, I think, a $40 million fine mm-hmm. for their, their part in illegal pharmacy shipping. So to your question— they did coordinate with agencies around the world, but really only the U.S. has the ability to track someone who's as sort of international and as sophisticated mm-hmm. as LaRue. So Australia was trying to get him, but they just don't have the resources to put into it, particularly when he's in a place like the Philippines where the U.S. would show up and say, hey, can you put surveillance on him? And he would just turn around and pay the authorities 
To not put surveillance on him. Not only to not put surveillance on him, but to tell him exactly what the U.S. had told them. Right, right. So that type of operation can only really be run by the DEA. Like, no one has the even the purview to kind of travel around the world. Do they have the technology? Because, you know, this is being brought up in this whole immigration debate, like this idea of what we need for border security. A lot of it is around drug interdiction. That's what, At least that's what it's supposed to be about. They do have technology. I mean, there is technology focused at the border. It was pretty interesting because they, you know, these investigators that I mentioned, Kimberly Brill, like, they basically taught themselves. Like, mm-hmm. they taught themselves how this network worked and how to unravel it. Like, what's ICANN? How do we subpoena ICANN? Like, they mm-hmm. learned all those things themselves. But then there were, and then, of course, like, encryption experts that can be called upon by the DEA. Mm-hmm. But when they caught Paul LaRue and they wanted to use him as an informant to then help them catch other people, mm-hmm. and they needed to get inside his encrypted email system, they had to ask him to do it. Like, they said, hey, can you sit down and mirror your email into this other email because we right. want, we need to keep all this for evidence. And, you, you know, sure, I'll, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. So they really had to rely on the guy himself. He became sort of like the head of their technological operation on the other end. Which is astonishing. Yeah. So where does it go? Where do you see... What do you imagine is next in this area? So you've got this guy using entrepreneurial things. Where's the next phase of drug dealing going? Next space. phase of drug dealing. You can answer space and just like, <laughs> leave it at that. I mean, I don't—I'm sure there's a kind of uh, next revolution around the corner that you can't quite see. But, I mean, what I think is that there— is clearly a market for an internet-driven cartel, and okay. uh, not what does just that. Look like that looks like similar to what Larue did. It looks like something that's distributed around the world, where there's yes, people are located somewhere, but there's no sort of like central focus of it. Mm-hmm. That it's able to adapt very quickly. So if you shut down one avenue, they just open up another one mm-hmm. uh, because they're not entirely dependent on sort of like cocaine that's grown here and brought here and then taken across the Mm -hmm. border. They're actually operating in all corners of the world. And that they're able to participate in any number of illegal ventures all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, LaRue was kind of unique in that he kept it all in his head. Like, he Mm -hmm. was just one guy. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually you would need a larger organization to do all of the projects that he engaged in. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And the blockchain, of course. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, there. I mean, of course. There was a Davos thing about blockchain crime. I was like, oh, geez. There is. I mean, cryptocurrency. Yes. For all of its uh, ups and downs, the one thing that it has proven yep. absolutely useful for is laundering dirty. money. Like one hundred percent great place to launder money. Yep. Dirty business. Even if uh, the Does value, that change? the value doesn't really depend Does on that change. That. No, I don't think that. I mean, I don't see how that. Uh, I mean, does it morph into something? Everything starts with a crime, as you know, Evan. I mean, a lot of Every things. Every great fortune starts with crime. Yeah, a lot okay. of things start with criminal application, and then and then find their mainstream. Yeah. Application. I mean, I just, that's that's the hope of the blockchain is that mm-hmm. the uses that we're finding for it now are not going to be the mm-hmm. uses that are turn out to be the most enriching for humanity. Um, that's the story. Right. But certainly, the uses that are being found for it now are are interesting, and a lot of them are are criminal. Right. So where does it go? Where does it go now? Where does cryptocurrency go? No, where does this? Where does Paul go now? What happened? Oh, Paul. Well, uh, Paul Larue is in U.S. custody. He's actually in uh, Brooklyn right now, I oh, believe. Oh, El Chapo. Yes, um, I doubt they are housed 
uh, right next to each other. Although, interestingly enough, I found out that LaRue was housed with uh, a hacker who had been mm-hmm. put in prison for swatting. Mm-hmm. And uh, swatting. that guy's now out. And why they allowed Paul LaRue to be housed right in conjunction with a hacker is sort of surprising to me. Oh, no. I don't know how that happened. Up. So they discovered already, this came out uh, like at a trial last mm-hmm. year, that LaRue was already trying to rebuild his business with the this swat. guy who's out. Uh, in the Philippines, he was already trying to restart oh, his geez. call center business. So Larue will be—he'll be sentenced sometime in the first half of this year. There's a what's called a control date set for March, but I'm not sure it's going to hold. And he could get anything from 10 years to life, or they could throw out the guidelines and give him time served because he cooperated. So it's mm-hmm. really down to the judge as to whether his cooperation was valuable enough for him to mm-hmm. get out immediately or serve 20 years or 30 years. But he took a plea deal in which he admitted to a lot of things, but only is charged with uh, a very small number of crimes. Right. Wow. What are you doing next, Evan? I'm starting a new project. What's that? I can't talk about it yet. Really? Does it have to do with drugs? It doesn't have to do with drugs. Mm -hmm. Journalism again? It is journalism again. Oh, damn it, Evan. Yeah. Why do you keep coming back to it? I can't. I can't think of anything else, I guess. All right. Okay. How how do you feel about the state of journalism right now? Just briefly, because we got to go. Well, briefly. I think I'm a little perturbed at the state of sort of uh, new organizations mm-hmm. around in journalism. Like, I feel like when we started Atavist, there was a real flurry at that time of people mm-hmm. trying all sorts they of things. Did. Some of the things which have become very large, like Vox, mm-hmm. and uh, some things which stayed small, like Atavist. Mm-hmm. A lot of things went away, but it felt like there was a lot of uh, experimentation happening, and it does not feel that way to me right not now. Not across tech, I think. I think it's something that's suffering all through tech. Yeah, and that's that's concerning because it's very clear that we haven't found the answers. So yeah. the idea that no one's asking the questions anymore, making those efforts, or mm-hmm. f- everyone feels so burned out that they can't do that. Well, it is exhausting. It's. I, I don't blame anyone for not yeah. starting. Yeah. Trust me. Uh, yeah. I'm not out there but uh, you're saying it again. should do it. Back to the salt mines. I don't know if I'm going to start something. I'm doing a new project. It's more like a story okay. than it is a business, well, for sure. I, I look forward to it. Evan, thank you so much for being here. Thank Thanks you. for coming on the show. And thank you all for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Uh, Evan, where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter at Ev underscore rat. Everett. Yeah. All right. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcast, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. And please buy Evan's book. It's called The Mastermind Drugs, Empire, Murder, Betrayal. I think that's all you need there to want to read that book. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.